0: State Representative Peggy McGaw could easily be called an elections expert. After all, the Carrollton Republican spent several decades working as a local elections official, and now she has some big ideas on how to overhaul voting in Missouri. And McGaw joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down those ideas. Let's hit the Music. <laughs>
1: Is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked
2: hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money.
0: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom, she is the representative for Missouri's 39th House District. Our guest today is...
2: Representative Peggy McGaw.
0: Representative McGaw, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to be talking a lot about election policy and the governor's state of the state. Um, But before we dive into issues, um, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about yourself and your district. First of all, explain to our listeners what your district encompasses, which counties, which towns, stuff like that.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Jason. My district is 1,800 square miles in length. It encompasses Ray County, which the major town there is Richmond. Carroll County, which is my home, and that's Carrollton. And Sheraton County, which is uh, the largest town there, is Salisbury, which goes to uh, Highway 36. So if people have traveled that area at all, the hill... Uh, going down into the town of Excelsior Springs is the beginning of my uh, district, and it ends nearly to 36th Highway near to Randolph County. That's huge.
0: That is a massive district. It's not like a, It's not like a Dan Hageman's district, which is the size of like Connecticut, but it's still pretty big.
1: <laughs> it's pretty is, big.
0: Is it difficult to represent a district that big, or is it basically the same? Because all the districts have the same amount of people but some in like St. Louis are only like five square miles. Like, is it more difficult to represent a district like this?
2: I don't know necessarily because I know no different. Um, I do know that serving in county government for over 30 years that um, you do get to know your area, you know, the people. And so when I made the decision to run, I found out pretty quickly that Ray and Sheraton counties were very, very similar to Carroll County. The people, the occupations, uh, their values, their morals. So in some way, it could be a lot easier for me to represent my 37,000 approximate people because they're people like me and my husband and my family. So I sometimes feel like I have an easy go.
0: So you were county clerk for Carroll County for how many years?
2: I had worked for the county clerk before me for nine years as his deputy clerk and chief elections, uh, and I made the decision to run in the 1995 general election when he retired at the age of 70. And I so I served over 32 years in the office as Carroll County uh, clerk. So that made me have five and a half terms.
0: And the reason that you are in state politics right now is actually a pretty interesting story. Your son, former state representative Joe Don McGaw, was appointed to a judgeship, and you ran in a special election and won pretty handily. The the interesting thing about that is that I think when your son ran in 2012, it was actually a pretty close race. I mean, close in the relative that it was competitive, and I think the Democrat may have gotten over 40 percent. I think when you ran in 2018, didn't you get like 70% of the vote or something like that?
2: Uh, 68 to be uh, right on the percentage. In, and yes, let's go back to 2012. Um, you know, that was the first election uh, for the new district. Um, prior to that, Carroll County was with um, Livingston County, where the more population is. And that's historically where our representatives tended to be from. Uh, we hadn't had a representative uh, in the Missouri House of Representatives from Carroll County since the 50s. So my son, Joe Don had just graduated from um, law school in 2010. He'd opened his practice there in Carrollton, and he he uh, he had clients and went to court in both Ray County, where we have a lot of relatives, and in Sheridan County. So his name was known in the area as a local attorney. Of course, my name was known as having been in you know, government all those years. So the time was right for him. He was new, well, he, he was married with a child coming. And uh, so uh, it was a big decision for him to make to you know, go to Jefferson City. But yes, it was a, a very spirited election. I can tell you that. And he prevailed. And then it made it easier for me to make the decision because he had been successful here. He had uh, served on very good committees. And I knew I had um, the support of the party.
0: I think I need to just point this out for a semi-disclosure. Joe Don and I were at Mizzou at the exact same time. Um, Our fraternities actually were paired for homecoming one year when I was uh, a pledge at Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity. I think that he was a sophomore in his fraternity, which was Agro, So it's very possible that your son was yelling at me to continue pumping. But enough, well, I checked
2: with him. I checked with him after you uh, so uh, nicely asked me to interview. And I said, there's a connection there and I, it has something to do with your fraternities. But I don't think that he was in aggro. And he's like, no. He was in and, you know, what you said, and we did we did homecoming together one year. So that's funny. That's interesting.
0: Enough about me and my fraternity life. Let's talk about issues now. So okay. one, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is you have a copious amount of electoral electri- elections experience on a local and state level. And we've just gotten off this election cycle where absentee balloting here and around the country is in, in, is in focus. Uh, We're in a situation now in Missouri where these changes to the absentee system that were made in 2020 are no longer around. So you can't check off an excuse saying you had COVID or are susceptible to COVID. And you don't have this mail-in ballot option where you can request it for any reason, but you have to mail it back. It has to be notarized. You can't drop it off. So my question for you is, what do you think the legislature should do to make absentee balloting easier and more intuitive for people? And what do you think that they will do? I think that the second question is harder to predict, but what do you want them to do?
2: I want elections to be free, fair, and transparent. That's the way I ran them in my county. And I can tell you that the election authorities, the local election authorities, and we will call them LEAs to make it easier. The LEAs throughout the state, including the board there in St. Louis, um, are fantastic people who m- more often than not look past party to run the elections. You know, we have to have the bipartisanness of the party, but they treat no one any different when they come in to vote absentee or uh, the mail-out provision that was allowed last year and the whole election process. It was sad to me to watch what was going on in other states, to be honest. Um, I, I, used Dominion machines myself for 10 years and I can tell you that people got the impression that there was some type of manipulation in the hardware of the ballot box counting machine. I personally don't think that's possible. Now the software in Missouri, if you owned Dominion machines, was done by a third party where you bought the machines from. Uh & Swires in Springfield, uh, shout out to them, was the provider for my um, software that went with the hardware, the Dominion machines. So I got off a little bit on a tangent there, but I wanted people to, in Missouri to know that even if the counties, theirs included, was a Dominion County, that doesn't mean that it was something that um, should be scared of. They check, double check, do the Pipe Artisan teams. Um, you know, it's it's all something that is very well done, I, I believe. So where do I want elections to go? I think COVID-19 has shown us that there are people who need an optional way to vote um, rather than all going to the polls on election day. Um, we don't all go to um, the grocery store on one day. I mean, you know, there we need options. That's why stores are open seven days a week. So my goal this year, and it has been since I've been here in the legislature is to craft a bill that both Democrats and Republicans can embrace, but also that the local election authorities will know when they prepare for their elections that they're all doing the same thing and that it's throughout Missouri and not that the people have to come and lie about getting a ballot or be confused about what type of document they need to bring in to get a ballot.
0: I, I, wanna, I wanna talk about what you just mentioned there. Because the biggest criticism of Missouri's absentee ballot system where you have to check off a specific excuse is people clearly lie all the time about being out of town and there is nothing anybody can do about it. So we already basically are under a no excuse system, except it's based off of, you know, people lying and deceiving election officials with no consequences. And that from what I when I talk to local election officials. They would just rather have no excuse because they don't want to go through this charade anymore. Is that what you experienced over the past bunch of years, too?
2: I do believe that the LEAs are uncomfortable about the situation, but there are no absentee police or uh, excuse uh, driven type of uh, searching of people. But they did. The county clerks and, and LEAs passed a resolution For many years, including this year, that would ask that we go to a no excuse type absentee voting so that statewide they can all uh, take care of the people the same, whether it's a small county or a large county.
0: So I think one of the—just before I play this clip from Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, one of the bills that you have proposed in the past, and I think you may be proposing it this year, is basically saying if you go to an election authority office before Election Day in person, no excuse that way. Um, And this is what uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft told me a few weeks ago about just the whole—what his basic philosophy is about this debate about going to no-excuse absentee voting.
1: The details, obviously, as you know, with any legislation, are extremely important. But what I think I will continue to push, especially with what we saw after the elections this year, is that we want people voting in person as much as possible. Now, we may see some suggestions that we make it harder to to vote absentee by mail, but we make it easier for people to vote absentee in person. There may be some trade-offs there, and, 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 and I, I, I'm willing to look at that um, because I, I think we need to make sure it's easy for every registered voter to vote, but I do not want to have problems where people don't believe that the, the election was run in a credible fashion.
0: I could see two ways to react to that statement. On the one hand, you may be like, it just makes sense for it to be no excuse absentee for any way you deliver the ballot. On the other hand, I think that there's been a push from both parties to make in-person absentee more available and accessible for years. So it seems like what Secretary of State Ashcroft is saying seems like he's amenable to much of what you're asking for. What's your reaction to that?
2: My first reaction is um, happy that the... uh, current secretary of state and his staff are easy to work with and open to changing something to make it more convenient for people to come into the election authority's office and not have to fib to get a ballot. So my, my bill that is still in research, but it's ready, it'll be ready next week, proposes for three weeks out, three weeks before the date of the election, A person can come to the office with a photo ID and be able to get a ballot without an excuse. They will mark the ballot while they're in the office and they themselves will thread that ballot through the ballot machine, the ballot counting machine, or in the case of St. Louis, they have On Demand. Um, Their ballot will be cast without them having to worry about. Was it received in the mail? Did it really get counted? It will get counted the second they drop it in that uh, counting machine
0: so you you mentioned before that county election officials have been pushing to get rid of the ex, the excuse system in the absentee balloting process for years. Why has it been so hard to get that done? like what what's the oppositionary argument to keep this excuse system in place?
2: I'm not sure. And it could be another one of those things that it's the way it's been done for so long. And perhaps the law has needed to be changed, but no one wanted to take on the challenge. As I said, I was an election authority all those years. And it was just known that if a person came to your counter and they didn't know why they needed an excuse, they would always choose the number one, be out of town on election day. And we just have to nod our head and uh, let them get the ballot. Fibbing.
0: Now, you mentioned about photo ID. And I just want you, if your bill is passed and somebody wants to vote no excuse absentee in person, explain what they would have to bring with them. Because, I mean, it's no secret that the whole question about government issued photo IDs for voting is very controversial. But I think it's important for you to just explain if your bill is passed and signed into law, um, what they would have to do to make sure that the process is completed.
2: I want them to make sure they also know if they don't have a photo ID, they can easily get one. And since 2016, the Secretary of State's office has been available to help with that process. And what they get is an ID with their picture that says it's a voting ID. It's for nothing else but voting. Now, obviously, if they can use it at Sam's Club, maybe they, they can. Um, that's the important thing. No one needs to be scared of coming to vote, but they also need to know that, you know, there are so many other things that requires a photo ID, including to rent a car, to apply for a bank loan, to rent a hotel room, to get the COVID vaccine, that the, um, the process of voting is just as important, if not more important. And I don't want every anybody to think that we're trying to make it harder.
0: My understanding is that your bill also eliminates the presidential preference primary. Can you explain why you would want to do that?
2: The local election authorities have notated that the um, lowest turnout election that requires the most work is the uh, presidential preference primary. The secretary of state's office agrees that that is an eight to nine million dollar uh, price tag where those dollars could be used someplace else more efficiently.
0: So would would Missouri become like a caucus state or something like that, where it would just be run by the party, basically, instead of having basically an, you know, an election like every every election you go to?
2: My bill doesn't state what it goes back to, but that's what it was prior to us having a presidential preference primary.
0: What do you think is the the chances of your bill making it to the finish line this year?
2: I hope we have very good chances because it's a good bill in that it's time to do something for the election authorities. It's time to do something for the people so that they know that their ballots are cast and count. They don't have to rely on the mail. They don't have to lie to get a ballot. Uh, there are many thing, many great things in this bill that will streamline the process and uh, cut down on costs for the Secretary of State's office and the local election authorities, who, by the way, are not reimbursed for having August primaries or November elections by the state or federal government. It's all uh, a cost that the counties have to uh, take on.
0: We'll be right back after this short break with State Representative Peggy McGaw. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Peggy McGaw, a Republican from Carrollton. I want to ask you about Governor Parson's State of the State Address. We're recording this on Friday, um, January 29th. So it's been a couple of days since it happened. Uh, Obviously, there was all the drama about the venue, which we talked about in a previous Politically Speaking. Um, What were your general impressions of this particular speech? And uh, what do you think was the big takeaway from it for you.
2: I won't get into the um, polarization or the um, rumors that there were a lot of unrest between the governor's office and the uh, speaker of the house because I was not in that meeting and do not know. And I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to judge at all. But you know we all know that, and we can agree that COVID nineteen has totally caused us to change the way we do things. And so this year's state of the state address was actually no no exception. Um, you know the house chamber is already extremely difficult to navigate with the 163 members on the floor at the same time. So when you add in the members of the senate, the judiciary, and all the statewide office holders, you know you have a full chamber. You've been there, and it's really too full to properly ensure the health and the well being of everyone present. So. I, I personally was um, happy that um, there wasn't going to be further COVID violations or uh, COVID problems. So I thought the governor did a great job. I thought he looked very comfortable on that dais because that's where he came from.
0: Well, he was a house he was a house member to start off with, so he was served in both chambers. He, but but, uh-huh. but I want to talk more about the substance of the speech, and and I think that the biggest. Thing he talked about. He didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to play this clip now where he talks about how Missouri is on the precipice of expanding Medicaid under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act.
1: Like I have said many times, I will always uphold the will of the voters
0: and we will move forward with the expanding Medicaid coverage to approximately 275,000 Missourians. However, it is important to remember
1: that the cost of this expansion will be significant, hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, this will have a major impact on other areas of our budget. And we must plan
0: accordingly, which means staying vigilant in maintaining the program's integrity and protecting against fraud and waste. Now, there's a little bit of context I just want to provide. Um, based off the Affordable Care Act, if you expand Medicaid up to, I think, 138% of the federal poverty level, the feds will pay for 90% of that, which means that the state has to pay for 10%. Um, I went to a state budget briefing. Uh, the state budget director said of general revenue dollars this year, it's going to be about $120, 130000000 million. And this year... They're not going to have to take money from other areas because the federal Medicaid reimbursement is higher than in prior years. So I think what the governor is talking about is that in subsequent years, when expansion goes into effect, that's when I think people are going to have to start talking about where they're going to get the money for the 10 percent. Is that how you kind of interpreted that particular line? Or am I just psychoanalyzing the governor to, 45 second soundbite a little too much
2: no i think you've done a great job you obviously do your homework not only hearing someone speak but going to the source which in this instance was uh, the budget i sit on the um i'm actually the vice chair for the subcommittee on health mental health and social services that my first meeting was yesterday so it is very um Gratifying, but also sad to me to see the current state that we are in with the um, standardization of the rates and the pay of the individuals who work in those departments. It needs to change because of the minimum wage going up to 15, they are not going to be able to keep people in those facilities. Now, I know I've geared away from Medicaid, but you know, um, it's all that pot of money that um, first and foremost, we're going to have to take care of our people so that they can take care of the people that they're in charge of. Um, I, I agree that this first year probably will be the smallest um, increase, but uh, the budget director, Dan Hogg, has said that the trajectory that we are on is non-sustainable. So that's what we're gonna have to worry about in future budget years.
0: So I think that there are probably ways you could pay for that state portion. And there is the argument that, you know, Medicaid expansion will eventually pay for itself because there'll be costs that are driven down. I think on the people on the other side say that that very well may happen. It's hard to predict. But let's just say that doesn't happen. Aren't there like another number of avenues the legislature could take to directly pay for that cost, whether it be Taxing managed care organizations or legalizing marijuana or finding some sort of direct payment that is not like raising income taxes or sales taxes. Like what's kind of your thought process on that uh, tack toward paying for Medicaid expansion in the future?
2: Well, I like your suggestions. Again, you've, you've thought that out. Um, I think we are in a bit of a perfect storm now with the um, Medicaid expansion happening in August um, with the COVID-19 reaction of less sales tax or businesses shutting down. Um, There's going to be perhaps even more than the 275,000 that uh, were predicted because of the fact that they're not working and their businesses shut down. So there's so many unknowns about how many people are, will be eligible, where the money will come from, and what services or other departments that will have to suffer from uh, the reduction. I hope that we can uh, work it out so that no one feels the entire pain.
0: You actually mentioned something that was really interesting, and that is like, how do you make sure that there are enough providers to deal with this expanded you know, pool of people that are going to be coming into the Medicaid system? Because I would imagine that people that were uninsured still went to the doctors or their emergency rooms, even if they didn't have Medicaid. But if they have Medicaid and they go to doctors or clinics more, you're going to need more providers to deal with that population. Um, When you were talking about the $15 minimum wage, is that kind of what you were referring to, that the reimbursement to providers has to be equally as generous when we're talking about Medicaid expansion? in addition to making more people eligible for the program?
2: That is what I was referring to. Um, The departments that uh, had their hearings yesterday, every single one of them told um, stories about their employees who deal directly with the um, disabled and the children and all the departments. Um, One particular individual said he was 200 employees short um, because of pay, and so he proposed an 18% pay increase for the employees to take care of the programs. And 18% was a, a large number; it was over a million dollars. And therefore, you know, as a person who's you know come from you know um, working minimum wage jobs in my past, I uh, I want to be able to support that. I I know that. We get excited about Amazon coming to Springfield or, you know, another large organization like that coming in and taking jobs or making jobs available. But then again, you got to think about where those people came from and what services might go um, uh, without what the people may go without services because there's no one to perform them. What do
0: you think this is going to do to like the rural healthcare infrastructure? Cuz the bi- some of the proponents of Medicaid expansion have said if you have Medicaid expansion, you're going to save a bunch of hospitals that are kind of teetering on the brink of bankruptcy and because there'll be more demand for healthcare services and money from Medicaid will pay hopefully for them, which I think is a big if uh, that there'll be more healthcare infrastructure in rural parts of the state. Like what do you think about that? possibility once Medicaid expansion kicks in?
2: Well, the Hospital Association, you know, gives us updates and, and I'm, I'm involved with um, them in that I, I truly believe, since I have two hospitals in my district, that um, we needed something to help them and I hope this is it. I also know that uh, because of COVID-19, telehealth became a, a real uh, boon for the patients now I'd, I personally do not know how they are reimbursed how the hospitals or the doctors are reimbursed for the telehealth. I've not you know had the chance to really research that, but I think where people were worried about um, not having any type of services in the rural area that telehealth has, has become a real thing to help.
0: My last question for you is kind of about the outcome of Medicaid expansion. I think I've been mentioned many, many times. This is being done because there was a constitutional amendment that passed. It's not really optional for the legislature to do this, even though there's been a lot of opposition among Republicans, including the governor, by the way, to expanding Medicaid. So how do, how does this debate play out over the next few weeks and months? with a Republican legislature that may not want to do this, but really doesn't have any choice but to do it because it's constitutionally mandated. Like, what do you think? I know and this, again, this is very hypothetical. We don't know what, how debate is going to unfold, but like, how do you foresee this debate playing out over the next few weeks and months?
2: I really don't know being put on the appropriation committee. I tell you, I'm going to do my best to learn as I go. I will Make sure that I represent the area that I'm from, which is all rural. I hope that uh, what is done in the budget process will help um, keep hospitals open, keep clinics open, and keep people healthy.
0: Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining me on the show. For all of our stories, STLPublicRadio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. I know that you're on Twitter, but is there any other way for people to get a hold of you if they want to talk elections? Healthcare, or, or just how great Carroll County and Ray County and Sheridan County is?
2: Well, my house address is peggy.magaw, that's M C G A U G H at house.mo.gov. My office telephone number is 573 751 1468. I um, welcome any and all correspondence. uh, Being now on some subcommittees that are new to me, I welcome the input of anybody who has more experience than me, and it wouldn't take much in that instance.
0: Thank you very much, and until next time, so long.